This is Jakob Yre. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Good morning, Ilya. How are you doing today? Good morning, Ben. It is a lovely Sunday. Daylight savings. Daylight saving. Daylight saving. S- saving. It's not plural. You're, you're right. It is not plural. Yeah, I don't mean to correct you all the time. You, you like correcting me. I like correcting everyone when they say things like chomping at the bit or daylight savings. <laughs> Champing at yeah, the bit. Well, I, I think you can go either way. But it's the same thing with you could care less or you couldn't care less. That's true. But uh, here's what I, could, uh, I will say is I could care less. You can't care less. I, no, no. I could care less about our guest today because i care a whole lot about our guest so i'm that, capable. that makes no sense i'm capable of caring less <laughs> you, I, you should not though I, but i won't i refuse because it is it, it's a fantastic interview that you did with jacob Ire. he is amazing for those of you who don't know him off the top of your head he shot little tv series last year called chernobyl chernobyl which has gone into the pantheon of best tv series of all time limited series hbo is yeah. just killing it HBO kills it. They've been killing it for a long time. But uh, yeah, that and Watchmen. And, you know, there's a show that's on right now that I don't hear anyone talking about that I really enjoy called Avenue 5. Yeah, I, I'm glad that, that you really enjoy it. It has not totally clicked with me. I'm in all day long. It's it's a science fiction show from the creators of Veep. I mean, couldn't be better. All right. All right. Well, good. Good. I'm, I'm glad, glad you're into it. So, uh, Ilya, what do you want to talk about for our patented George Foyt close focus segment? Patented. Today? It would be trademark. Trademark. You're right. So Trade. Now, now design. Look at you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So close focus today. I think we have to talk about at least the big news of the past few days, which is South by Southwest. One of the largest film and music conglomeration festivals This massive, massive, sometimes a market. Things get acquired out of out of South. I, I'd say it's probably one of the top three film festivals in America. Uh, it's it's big. S- for certainly sure. top five. I'd say, you know, yeah, it's like, uh, 100 percent um sundance sundance, sundance south by Charlie ride tribeca yeah, there's, yeah it's a short list yeah and canceled 100 canceled and you got to understand that that affects probably about like 300 that plus thousand people so many people go to that festival and i heard that the city of austin compelled the organizers to cancel Oh, really? They didn't have like the mayor from Jaws there being like, no, we got to we got to have this. It's good for the local economy. It's good for the local economy. (laughs) Who cares if everyone gets coronavirus? And that is the reason is they canceled it because of COVID-19, the coronavirus. Well, before they canceled the entire event, they had major cancellations from Netflix and from Apple. I mean, big, big people backed out of it. And You, you know who this just sucks out loud for? I mean, like besides people who are going to die of coronavirus, which obviously supersedes literally anything we will ever talk about on the podcast. But it like think about you're a filmmaker. You busted your ass. Took you five years to make your movie, and you got into South by Southwest. Imagine that feeling. How awesome that must be. And then they cancel the fucking festival. 
And, you know, it's a launching pad for a lot of indie bands and things like that. Who yeah, then it's, get it's huge a cultural expansion. festival. It's, it is a huge. giant cultural. And, and there's panels. I mean, hundreds of panels. We had applied to be we, a panel. I, we were actually an alternate. So, I so. mean, yeah, it's like, uh, anyway, but, but here's the thing. It's a lot of people now with time on their hands and probably some non-refundable uh, stuff. They're not going to be able to get, they're not going to be able to get their deposits back on some things. Well, I mean, airplane tickets and stuff, you know, we'll see. But hopefully, like, South By will, like, give those people uh, tickets next year or something. Yes, probably. And the people who actually shelled out money for, like, their all-access passes, I believe they must have a refund coming to them. That That's, uh, I, I don't know how they could, could not do that. They, they'd probably get sued. I mean, but, it's a lot of people. I mean, like, I wonder if it's going to be a ripple effect that's going to hit other film festivals. For instance, one of our episodes of 20 Seconds to Live got into the Florida Film Festival. We were considering going because it's in Orlando, my hometown, and we were going to bring my son. And then it was like, you know what? Yeah. I don't think I feel like traveling right now. Yeah. I don't feel like like making a baby tra- travel across the country and also me and also my wife. Like we were just like, Meh, maybe not. And I love the Florida Film Festival. It's my hometown festival. I, I worked there for years and like every big film, I every big project I've ever worked on is played there at some point. I was very excited to go back and just like, Meh. and uh, you know, the other news is that companies are dropping out of NAB. I heard that Nikon dropped out of NAB. Nikon, Western Digital, which is a biggie too. Western Digital owns uh, G Technology and... Um, Didn't Canopus drop out? Canopus? I, I don't think Canopus still exists. I don't know about Canopus. So they definitely dropped out. <laughs> they may have dropped out years ago. I, no, I could have but, heard that they, I, I, maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, there, there are some other companies. I'm going to leave that in. Just I, I, yeah, like, that, I want that, people to know that I'm an idiot. There's a nice joke there yeah. for, for Canopus. Uh, yeah. but, uh, and if they do exist, boy, I'm, I'm sorry. I Canopus, you could have us be your, uh, you could sponsor us and we'll, <laughs> we'll put you back on the map right where you were, Canopus. I don't even really know what 25, Canopus is. 25, yeah. 30 years ago. <laughs> so. Uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, NAB is being affected. You know, Stanford University canceled all of their in-person classes for the Whoa. rest of the semester. That's like uh, th- there's there's major disruption that's happening. Uh, schools are canceled in Washington State. So there's a lot of like uh, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, things like that that I know have been, been the classes were canceled. There's pretty serious disruption that's happening. Not to mention in other countries, of course, it's it's far worse. Here's here's the thing about it though, and we've seen this happen with other threatened pandemics and even things like the Y2K virus, where if the experts who are working day and night, I assume right now, to prevent this from happening, if they are successful. We will look at this and go like, ah, nothing happened. And it's going to make everyone go like, ah, no big deal. And if and that's what we want. What we want is nothing bad to happen. And that means that the people who we put in charge actually did their jobs. Yes, I, I will say that it seems very laissez faire here in the U.S. compared to some other places. It seems like it is not the government that is taking concrete steps to enforce these sorts of quarantines, because, of course, they affect business. They, they yeah. you know, it's people don't want martial law. This is not something that that we, we want in order to save us from a virus. I'd rather be in my house for three weeks than people be dead, though. That's yeah. Know. And and you know what? Uh, the time to do that would have been weeks ago, would yeah. have been months ago. Now it is, it's a, it's a little like, what do they say? Closing the barn doors after the cows have all, all left. Yeah. It's like, or <laughs> after the yeah. cows have all run out with bovine fever. Yeah. It's um, bovine pox. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, I, I don't know what the end result will be. I, I, I've been in several grocery stores and drug stores over the last few days, not because I am hoarding things. I am not, I didn't buy anything but a kombucha, but I will tell you that out of, uh, curiosity, I always walk past the hand sanitizer shelf or like the bottled water shelf mm-hmm. and the run on things in right now that's toilet happening paper. and oh god 
in LA is ridiculous. Like I took a photo yesterday when I was in Sprouts buying my kombucha, and sure enough, the Gross. hands the hand sanitizer uh, uh, shelf completely cleared out, full stock of all these other things. Then I was like, oh, rubbing alcohol. What I, about rubbing alcohol? Completely cleared out. I don't mean to brag, yeah, yeah. but since we've had a baby, I have uh, hand sanitizer all over the house. So I've been you're stocked. I'm you're, pretty, you're, I'm, I, I know to cut to go to you if I got to get some. Yeah, I just want to say my cuticles look like the surface of Mars because of all the hand sanitizer I've been using for years. All right. Well, uh, well, congrats. You're right. They do look like the surface of Mars. Whoa. Well there's, a little, there's a little rover on there, one of them. There is totally. Uh, all right. Well, hey, uh, Ben, I think that we ought to get to our interview. All right. Well, here he is. I'm going to have you say the name because I'm uh, so Jacob bad. Ire. <laughs> The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I'm here at Hot Rod Cameras in uh, Burbank, California with Jakob, and I cannot pronounce your last name, so I'm going to ask you to do it. It's uh, Jakob Ire. Thank you. I tried like six times, and, and I just couldn't even get close, and uh, I'm, not, okay. I, I'm a filthy American, so I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't say your name right. Anyway, we're, we could not be more excited to have you on here, and uh, we're not going to start with Chernobyl, but when Chernobyl first dropped, I remember Ilya and I, we, we do a segment at the end of every episode where we kind of talk about our pet obsession of the week, and my obsession was Chernobyl right after it started. And I just think the work in that all the way around, top to bottom, from the writing to the casting to the cinematography and everything, all work about as perfectly as I can imagine anything working. So I'm really excited to kind of hear your whole story. So we always start with my riddle of the Sphinx, which is I kind of have a a belief that some cinematographers, when they're looking at something, when they're starting to put together the vision of it, they see it as a series of compositions. And some of them see it more in like the quality of the lighting. Now, you can dispense with the very premise of it but like when you start thinking in cinematography terms about a script where do you land well i try to wait um, just to hear out listen to the uh, listen to the writer and listen to the director and listen to everyone involved in the story and then when i know as much as they do almost um, about the characters and what the ideas behind you know a certain line in the script or Mm -hmm. Or, like I said, when I know the the history of um, the French Revolution, uh, you know, if you know if the story takes place in, in that time, then then I can start to um, or try to visualize it with with lights or with with angles or with lenses. And and if what comes first, it all I can't say really. It all depends, you know. It mm. it all depends. So, I mean, would you say that you kind of look to the director or the the writer, the author of the material kind of as a starting off point uh, for yourself in terms of like where the look is going to come from? Not always. I mean, some directors don't have a clear you know, idea on exactly yeah. who she look like or they, they want to uh, they might have an idea, but they might they want you to to say it first or you want to yeah. try to. Um, well, yeah, like in an interview situation, sometimes they would they not want you to kind of come in and tell you what what you would do differently yeah. than what the last two people they talked to. Yeah, would. and so it all depends. And in, and in, you know when you meet up with directors for some not interviews, but when you meet up about the project, knowing that other DOPs are also kind of might be con- also considered, then you try to bring up you know you show photographs or or you talk about things that you know that. Um, that came up in your head when you read the story and, and in terms of Chernobyl, you know, I was, I think there were quite many DPs who were called for the job and uh, it was kind of a last minute thing for me because uh, I was on another project which suddenly got pushed or got uh, shelled almost. Uh, so um, I had, for, in my case, after reading the script, I just thought of this book uh, called The Family of Man. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I don't know if you know about this book, but it's, it's, um, it was an exhibition in, in, um, at the MoMA in the 50s called The Family of Man, which was, I think it's the biggest photography exhibition that's ever been held mm-hmm. in the world, or at least at the MoMA, uh, which is an exhibition, or was an exhibition showing hundreds of photographs depicting uh, mankind in different situations uh, from all over the world. And, and that exhibition was made well as a reaction to the, um, to the nuclear threat at the time. This was back in the 50s, and, and the exhibition wanted to show the world that we are all the same with these photographs. And for me, that's a book that I kind of... My grandmother gave me that book when oh, wow. I was in my um, early teens, 11, 12, I think. And, and that's a book with amazing photographs of many of the kind of greatest uh, cameramen at the time or the legends of today, photographers. They were often kind of... They were, many of them were discovered in this photo exhibition, which later became a book. And for many projects that I do, I always go back to that book and always find maybe one chapter in the book that kind of relates somehow to a story or to a script. But in this case, it was quite interesting that the entire book became my first thing to go to, to think of when I thought of the project Chernobyl. And it's kind of not a coincidence, but it's quite odd that they both are depicting the nuclear kind of holocaust or the nuclear a nuclear disaster. That book became a big kind of guide to maybe on how to approach uh, the project. Yeah. Let's go into a little bit of your background. What is the moment for you when it first occurred to you that being a cinematographer was a thing you could do with your life? I uh, knew from quite early on that it was a profession. Yeah, no, I mean, from early on, I was, uh, you know, the classic thing, like many you know, of us in this industry, I started to make shorts and... and uh, I got a video camera. My father was traveling to Japan <laughs> and came back in the 80s with a you know, VHS camera. Mm-hmm. And I started to play around with that and started to read American cinematographer you know, from a very early age. And, but I never realized it was, a, strange enough, I never realized I could work with it. I, never, I knew it was professional, but I was so um, kind of not uh, brainwashed by myself, but, I, but my surrounding made me just not realize that I could also do that. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, well, I'm not a director. I've, I mean, I was 13 at the time, and I knew that I, you know, I was reading Merle by Steven Spielberg and buying books about him. But reading about him, I also felt that, hey, I'm not a... If he's a kind of the template of a director, I felt I'm not a director. <laughs> and I'm not an actor. And my friend who wanted to become an actor, and I thought, okay, well, I'm not that either. And for some stupid reason, I never realized, you know, that I can also maybe be a... You can also make films by doing something else yes. in the business. But I never realized that. Despite reading a cinematographer, I never... When I was 14, 15, I never realized for some oh, really? very odd reason that I could also enter that world. So even at 18, even after reading American yeah, Cinematographer I, for years? Yeah, it was still very odd because the past to become a cinematographer was very unclear and, and mm-hmm. uh, big but unknown. In in Sweden, I mean, like, I, I don't know if I have a romanticized version of it, so kind of set me straight. Like, I feel like we have so many noteworthy filmmakers and a lot of noteworthy cinematographers that come from Scandinavia in general and, and Sweden in particular. What is the common perception of going into the arts or going into filmmaking and also like it's a state sponsored thing there too right so yeah. like so you know anyone from any class can, can yeah, kind of play around with that's it that's right? true I mean from from early on I was exposed to you know art you know I was a, quite a spoiled kid when my mother you know took me to Paris to Musée d'Orsay in Paris and 
showed me the Impressionists when I was um, 10 years old. And, uh, but at the same time, it was a very focused atmosphere on studies mm. in my household. And they always said that whatever you do, you can do whatever you do, but um, you choose to do, but always find a degree in that and always go all the way and get a degree in whatever you choose to do in life. I feel like we're always kind of having a debate. We we have people in here who have been to film school. We have people who haven't. What do you think are the upsides of film school? And granted, it's different now than when you would have gone. But like, what are the advantages of having gone to a film school for you? Uh, well, it's you meet directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met uh, amazing directors who I still work with today. Mm-hmm. And those directors have um, kind of made a kind of path for me in, in, in my life, in my profession. You know, it's... Um, I do think that's a big part of it. I think the networking value, like the people you meet there, you end up working with them. They end up getting used to working with you and bringing yeah, you to the Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't know what would happen if I hadn't gone to film school. I might have, mm-hmm. you know, you might meet kind of partners in crime some, in some other way. But uh, for sure, at least my, my experience is a good proof on um, that you meet up with, you know, great people that you, well, according to you, great people that... Uh, and I'm not sure we said the name of the school. What was the school? You uh, went the to? National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield, England. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of uh, AFI or uh, the Cine Lumière of, um, of of English film school. It's a kind of the state-owned film school, so to speak. So, how long were you there? I was there for three years, mm-hmm. from '99 uh, to well, 2001 and 2001. So in, again, you and I were kind of talking off mic about the benefits of being in a program for that long. You know, for three yeah. years. Talk about like how much you got to you got to do like how well it's it's more uh, that school was more like a postgraduate school in a sense that you know most people who who went to that school had been working in the industry for a long while uh, well they you know most people are in the late twenties and they maybe have been to a film school earlier mm-hmm. uh, or or like in my case I had been working for or in freelancing for for a while. And um, so people come there not to, you know, sit down and learn um, film theory, theory, or sit down and and uh, have a, you know, to read books about cinema. It's more like a, you know, like a production company or a forum yeah. where you you meet fellow filmmakers and you do things together. And of course, you are supervised by these amazing, um, you know, mentors and teachers. Uh, guiding you and having different master classes, but the, I guess the best the best mentors are actually other you know the students themselves to each other. To you give you, you get feedback on the work you do, and and uh, it's a beautiful environment. When you were there, were you there with other people who are kind of still active in the business that we would know about today? Yeah, many of them. Um, Natasha Breyer and um, so many DOPs are doing so well um, out there today. Who are from the film school and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it was a film school of Roger Deakins. Um, he went there, but that was, of course, 20 years before me. And, and today they are, you know, I've been working a lot with the director um, Joachim Trier, the Norwegian Danish director Joachim Trier. We have done, you know, f- four films together. He's from there and, and uh, many great kind of technicians, so to speak, who are from there as well. And, uh, and great directors, Marianne Ulriksen, uh, Pudja Kohl, Michal Morganim, uh, you know, directors who, are, who, who do amazing, amazing, amazing work. And you're working with them. I mean, like, what what's the environment like? How do the projects come about? How do you 
hade people at the film school. Yeah. Many times it, there were exercises, that, you know, part of the curriculum. You had to do different kinds of exercises, mm-hmm. but then of course every year the you know the poor director had to come up with one uh, one film for every year, and you know you make your graduation film. So prior to that graduation film, which might be a 50 minute film, you you know there was a you do a shorter film which is maybe five minutes, and so you work with directors or kind of drama directors, and then you work with documentary directors on their projects, and you work with animators. Wow, so you get like a across the board yeah, education yeah, in different yeah, for sure. styles. Well, the directors that you work with, I mean it's a it's a I mean I did cinematography and you know there are, I think there were 10 different other programs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, editing and production design, but so and you and some exercises or films you do without the director where um, the editor is a director and and uh, it's kind of different kind of constellations that they try out and and um, and then afterwards it all being kind of evaluated and discussed and and that's what you really learn from. So when you finished up there, what was your intention? Were you going to go back to Sweden? Were you going to stay there? Like, what, what, did, what did you see your career being at that time? Yeah, I think I was as kind of um, not naive. Well, naive I was for sure, but I was also I didn't know how you know what the world would look like from now on. You know, I mm-hmm. I had no idea what would happen, and I just remember that I you walked out there. I was staying, in, I was living in London at the time, and. You were almost kind of like a catwalk, or you were, you know, you, Soho in London is where all the production houses are and all the production companies are in this little area called Soho in London. And you remember just walking around there, showing your your work, your reel to people and to directors and producers. And you were kind of knocking doors at that time, and you had nothing to lose. And people were very, you know, the school has a very good uh, renommé, and people were very positive. And you said you were from this film school, and they said, "Oh, please come over and and show what you have done." And that led to uh, that I started to shoot commercials in England, and that one of the commercial directors um, had to well, you know, was given his first film to shoot, and he asked me if I wanted to do that one. And so quite early on, I was uh, I was working shooting commercials, and then yes, a couple of years, two years, three years later, I, I shot my first feature film, which was a, quite a big budget at the time in, in England. Mm-hmm. And w- what was that first feature? Well, it's called The Virgin of Liverpool. Okay, yeah. Uh, with Melda Staunton, who is an um, Oscar nominee, but it's, it's not a great film, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so, uh, like, at that time, I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of, like, what your expectations were calibrated at, you know, so we're talking about, like, early 2000s, 2001, 2002, yeah. whatever, and you're shooting commercials. Do you love shooting commercials? Do you love shorter form? Do you see yourself doing that? Or are you always kind of keeping an eye on, I want to do long form stuff? Well, I guess I was so kind of in tune or in sync with some of the directors who graduated at the same time as me. And, and so it was all about their projects, what, what was happening to those. And in the meanwhile, you know, you were lucky to shoot some commercials, which, mm-hmm. you, you know, you got excited by that. You were suddenly making some money and, and could move into a bigger flat. And But of course, it was all about what will happen to, you know, to my friends, or what will happen to my to these directors that I have had uh, kind of started out a working relationship with? I'm interested to to know, like, was your interest in doing full length features at that time or longer form? Because obviously Chernobyl is it's like making eight yeah. features. Yeah. Or were you just? Uh, I'm not saying just cool to work on commercials because that I mean that is a completely legit thing to say like I'm a commercial shooter and that's yeah. you know a, a fine career. No, I mean straight off the film school, everything was about when you know you were actually in the you had the same mindset as the directors when will I shoot my first feature film? Mm-hmm. That it was all about that and and 
which director will get his feature or her feature you know up first so it was it was really all about that and uh, but you stayed in england correct i stayed in england i stayed mm. i stayed in england and i had no plans really of going back to stockholm back to sweden where i'm at the moment yeah so it was all focused on on feature films on doing something longer and of course doing something very important you felt like a chosen one being at that film school and afterwards you were you had a lot of kind of um, maybe false but you had a lot of confidence and, <laughs> and belief in yourself and um, and you thought you could go you know anywhere and you had nothing you were not ashamed of anything of showing your work and talking about yourself and it was an amazing Period. Out of curiosity, how many students uh, were accepted at that program? Uh, there were four, in Natasha's year it was four, and in my year we were six, I think. So very, every, very few. Every second year. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very hard school to get into. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so obviously if you're one of the six that got in, then that that in itself is a huge endorsement of, yeah, of your work. Yeah. You know, I think that probably to a lot of our listeners, like Chernobyl is such a noteworthy thing that it kind of marks a new chapter in your work for to the average person who wasn't following uh, your career up until now. But you were working on some stuff that was like, you know, of reasonable budgets and and stuff that got theatrical releases and was well received. Yeah. After film school, I mean, the focus TV was not that big at the time in the beginning of 2000. And especially for me, I was not at all interested in TV. And and of course, living in London at the time, you know, of course, TV had a big presence and BBC and, and, and Channel 4 was, you know, was very big. And many of mm-hmm. my colleagues, of course, they were picked up by, by those shows. And, and I thought, never in my life will I do that. But, you know, I was uh, thinking back to the Swedish television at the time and I thought, I don't want to enter that world. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm doing cinema now and I'm working with the real, you know, film directors. And for me, you know, the festivals were all the, you know, the Cannes and the... The, the Toronto and the Venice Film Festival that was all what you know what um, my work was about that I wanted to show the things I worked on in, in those festivals so it was a big focus on that to to do you know pr- good quality films that would hopefully you know change um, the viewer so uh, I, I this is a huge question how do you go about navigating your career at that time how do you do you say no to a lot of pro, like do you get offered stuff for television and you're like nope i'm focusing on this other stuff and like how much discipline does it take on your part to kind of stay on the path you want yeah no well i think it was i was able to stay on the path because new one in the television knew about me in england at the time <laughs> i guess i kind of made it simple for me and i and i you know, I was clinging on or I was, you know, like I said, the directors from uh, National Film School, I was, you know, we were just waiting for some of their projects to, to blossom. Mm-hmm. And it did. Uh, I mentioned Michal Moganim who made Odessa Odessa, which we actually shot, you know, we shot it in Odessa in the Ukraine not far from, you know, Chernobyl. I was about to say, like, uh, I, I, having not seen it, but I'm like even just saying Odessa, Odessa, I'm like, I wonder why they chose you to shoot Chernobyl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, we have, we, well, I mentioned Joachim Trier, who was mm. also a year above me at the school. He did his first feature in 2005, 2006, called Reprise, mm-hmm. which was uh, picked up by uh, Miramax um, at the time. And, you know, it was a small uh, Norwegian film, but it made a lot of noise uh, kind of all over the world in, you know, in the pockets of of cinema in those different countries. And uh, and I think that film changed a lot of things for me. Mm-hmm. I guess that was a film that, I shouldn't say, took me to America, but uh, thanks to that little Norwegian film, 
which won you know loads of prizes um, all over Europe and and in America. A, I think it's a very good film that um, that changed a lot. It also took me into the world of commercials. It was a, at the time many directors and many projects uh, like commercials were ref- referencing that film. What about that film were, were people referencing? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the look of the film mm-hmm. somehow, I guess, it's all about the, the look uh, in commercials. And uh, it was a new voice. It was a new uh, film director who made this, who had a lot to say. And, and people or colleagues of, of him, of, of us um, all over the world, picked that up and, and found that very uh, inspiring. So uh, that kind of gets your, your phone ringing a little bit. And, uh, and you said it brought you over like you started working in America? Yes, I mean, the film is a kind of a coming-of-age story about young men in the, and women in their mid-twenties. And um, some of the direct, some young directors in America, you know, caught on to the film and, and were inspired. And uh, there were a few projects that were kind of in the States that were, um, that picked me up from, uh, you know, after I've seen that film. So in a lot of your work, you're dealing with people or families in crisis. I don't know if that's, you know, as a cinematographer, you don't necessarily get to choose the story every single time, but it, it seems like you gravitate to those kinds of stories. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, I've always been very attracted to or interested in projects about, you know, which you can relate to. And, and you know, before I had kids, I was very into films or wanted to, into, I was very much into scripts, which were telling stories about, you know, young men in, in, on their path to, uh, to become bigger men and to, um, and to find out more about themselves and, like that David Foster Wallace uh, movie. Uh, yeah, that also for sure uh, with uh, Jess Iceberg and, and Jason Segel about David Foster Wallace, which is kind of about existential crisis. And, yeah. and I made many movies with um, Joachim. Didn't the Swedes kind of invent existentialism? Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> what, I mean, I'm dead serious. Like when I was studying existentialism, the first thing that they showed us was The Seventh Seal. Yeah, no, like it, it, not, in a, not in a film class. It, no, yeah, it's true. It's in our DNA somehow. And, and, uh, and with the director Joachim Tria, that's something that we have always uh, dealt with or in his scripts he's all in, always mm-hmm. dealing with that about uh, who am I and uh, and uh, <laughs> and how do I get out of this uh, turmoil I have you know that I feel inside and uh, and these are films like Reprise and Oslo August 31st and, and, and Louder Than Bones which was shot in New York with um, Jesse Eisenberg and Isabel Huppert about the family in crisis so you always felt that you were shooting these important films and at the same time you were shooting your own story in many ways. I mean, many of his scripts, there's a lot of, of him in them and there's a lot of all of us in them. I mean, I see myself a lot in those stories that become extremely personal and, and those are the projects that I've always been trying to do and I've always said no to um, to maybe bigger, so to speak, bigger budgets in order to make something which I feel is very important to for myself to dwell in or to uh, discover, but also to, you know, to show no, to show my friends and family. I mean, to me, this is an interesting point because like the act of making a film, a lot of it is just about executing an idea, like setting up lights and putting, laying down dolly track and, you know, the, the, the practical day in, day out of that stuff. So what's the personal connection you're cre- y- y- you feel on, on a film set? How, how do you create a more personal uh, connection to the material as you're shooting it? Well, you know, the material is personal from the from the start. You know, there are there are scenes in a in a script which is uh, so close to you know that I have experienced myself, or a friend of mine has experienced. And but I can imagine a lot of DPs 
who have no personal ex- connection to the material will go in and light it and make yeah. it look beautiful, yeah. make it look appropriate, maybe make it look perfect for what the scene yeah, is, for sure. but not have that connection that you're talking yeah. about having. So I guess my question is like, how do you keep that personal connection and how does that engagement with the material affect you on a daily basis? Well, I'm lucky that these directors are continuing uh, writing about their own experiences and mm-hmm. about the experiences of you know, the friends and family around us. And you try to, to uh, and those are projects you're trying to say yes to. And, you know, there's moments during the shooting where the actors just stop and take a minute in order just to, you know, they're realizing what they're, act, what they're doing right now is exactly what they're doing back home. You know, what, mm-hmm. they, what the, the experiences they have on this film or as a character in the film is very identical with their own experience in life or it's it's always been very very personal and for the first time with Chernobyl I was doing something larger and of course you were worried that it won't be as intimate but uh, but talk about existential so I think that that's that's a good place to transition to talking about Chernobyl it's already won a bunch of awards probably gonna keep keep uh, moving forward on the awards front to me, it's like one of the best achievements in television in, in years. Just blows my mind. I, I was aware of it because I'm a huge fan of actually Craig Mazin's podcast, oh, uh, yes, Script Notes, which I've been listening to for, yeah. God, ten. it was maybe one of the things that inspired us to do this. Mm. I love the podcast and I love he- hearing him talk about uh, the process. But, you know, like he's obviously talking about the big picture, the writing, the casting and all that stuff. He even did a podcast where he brought some of the cast on from time to time. I don't know if you... Oh heard the podcast, but I, I'd love to hear kind of the boots on the ground, how that show is made kind of thing. So if you could start just by telling me, like, how did how did you enter the orbit of, of Chernobyl? Well, it was quite interesting. Um, I guess I, I should not say it's like a cliche that I was, you know, that you were made for this, but it's all, it's quite funny or sad. I mean, I, I started out making reconstructions of, of crime, and then I also worked on a show where we reconstructed uh, accidents mm-hmm. in Sweden, very super low budget for television, where we reconstructed maybe a, a small little gas explosion somewhere in Sweden, and and um, so I was, and now in the end, I, you know, we get to reconstruct the biggest explosion on the planet almost for real. And like I mentioned before, I I, I was in Odessa for two months shooting a documentary about uh, a certain group of of uh, of people in in Odessa and um, not far from the Kiev and with the same director I was supposed to shoot actually a film about the accident about the aftermath of the Chernobyl accident oh wow and that was five six years ago which I ended up not doing because it was clashing with something else unfortunately and and then at the same time I was sent a script called I think it was called the Chernobyl Diary, something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I think Did, it was a horror movie. Yeah, I think uh, um, Oren Pelly made that, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. And I guess that script was sent out to many DPs, but I just remember saying, "Wow, well, God, this is the second script I'm getting now, which is set in this world." And now, in the end, you know, <laughs> and I get to do this in the end. So, so Chernobyl found you. It, it found me, <laughs> unfortunately, somehow. But um, it's uh, it was an incredible project, of course, and and. It was unusual that everyone involved really made a say, sacrifice, but we all could have done something easier for all everyone involved, for families involved, and for for uh, yeah to do something which would be less strainful. And um, but people from you know all over the world, there were you know sun men from from France and and, and uh, SFX team from Germany and many Swedes and. Um, 
and people from American England, we all kind of uh, left our uh, not normal jobs, but uh, you know, in order to do this for you know for eight months in in Lithuania and then in the Ukraine. So, how did the opportunity to work on it come to you? And uh, you know, tell me a little bit about your collaboration with the director. Yeah, well, I was doing a, a film. I was prepping a film in in um, in Hungary uh, called The Deeper that MGM was doing. It was quite a, a big film, and it was a studio film, and it was like a kind of gravity set uh, underwater. And I was there for many months prepping, but in the end, it kind of fell apart. The movie, and I'm not sure if maybe they're making it now, but not with the same director and not with me. But so I was there, and and it just fell apart, and I went home. And at the same time, this film uh, Thelma had its premiere in in New York at the time, and of course I had a limited release. And I just told all my friends about all my friends in New York, please go out and support Thelma, which is this Norwegian French. Swedish film and uh, and one of those who I sent out to was Johan Renk, the director of Chernobyl, who I had been in touch with for some years, but we never had managed to work together. We had tried on different projects, but it hadn't turned out so with dates and etc. So I let him know about Thelma, please go out and see this. And and in response, he told me, oh, by the way, are you free now? Because I have a project that might interest you. Oh, really? I mean, like when you had met with him before, did he know that you had, you know, done this documentary in Odessa? No, no, not at all. Not at all. What about you made him think that you might be the right guy for this material? I don't know, really. I mean, (laughs) what can I say? I think think like in many cases, you're not the first, especially when it comes to, I mean, you have your friends that you make films with and you're always kind of the first choice or you're the kind of the obvious choice that you work, you continue working together. But when it comes to projects like this, I guess there there are so many. I guess it's hard to get your. I mean, it's hard to get your first choice. I'm not sure if I was the first choice. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know if who really was the first choice who ended up in the film. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I guess but, it, but it's for the, HBO, which is like the gold standard in television, and so you know, like they're not gonna they're not gonna take somebody's buddy. Like they've got to take somebody yeah, who's like yeah, the I guess perfect so. fit. I guess so. And and but I never done anything with a buddy like this before. But I guess the uh, I think the MGM project that I was assigned to, I think that helped me to um, kind of to be okayed or to be oh know, just by virtue of like who knows? you had been hired on a on a big budget maybe thing. Yeah, maybe yeah could be, but uh, so anyway so I, I showed up there in London just three days later after reading the script on the plane almost this uh, mm-hmm. six hundred pages. So you read the whole the whole series was already yeah written. yeah yeah it was all written and I guess with television that's quite unusual uh, yeah. I don't know for miniseries but at least you, you always hear about television that they only read they only written the first part and they will read uh, read so they will write the other parts as they go along I think the way HBO tends to work though is like they let people take a really long time to develop something yeah so, I guess so so yeah, you know I, I don't know so. how long Craig yeah. Mason had to develop it yeah but. no but for many for five years he's been working on it I guess, oh, wow. I heard. but uh, anyway so um, so I read that and I was completely you know blown away by it and some at the same time almost ashamed that I felt it so mesmerizing because it just you know you don't want it to be mesmerizing you don't yeah. want it to be a page turner you know you read it in just in three hours because it's so entertaining but you don't want it to be entertaining <laughs> so, you, so you almost don't want to use those words but you know it was um, it was for sure a very unusual script that it was it was so good and and fascinating 
And, well, and, uh, and I guess I have uh, somewhat of an unfair advantage in that I've listened to the podcast he made for HBO and I've listened to his his own podcast where he's talked about like the intense amount of research he did going into that, including going to Chernobyl like as in touring Chernobyl yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. Did you go to any of any of those extents? In terms of research? Yeah, like did you? I mean, well, if you went there, sorry. Yeah, no, did yeah. you go to Chernobyl, I guess is what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we were actually about to go to Chernobyl um, prior to the shoot. We were never meant to shoot there, but of course we wanted to pay respect or to, you know, to be there and to have a, you know, silent moment before, you know, before the, you know, to give, you know, to give or to receive some kind of a blessing that we were doing this. We wanted to go there and see it for real. But uh, they just called us just before we had to fly there. We, they called us and said, There's a, you can't come down, there's a fire. And he said, what? And then apparently the, the forest was on fire. The forest what? around Chernobyl, around the reactor, was on fire. It was the hottest summer in 100 years. That doesn't that. sound horribly ominous at all. <laughs> exactly. And and and. And the story kind of repeats itself, and we said, kind of, why, you know, but we haven't. It's not in the news. We haven't heard about this fire. Yeah, I know we're trying to keep it a bit silent. Really? So, so all the well, Craig Mason has talked about it. There was another nuclear tragedy in Russia, like right after Chernobyl finished, and they tried to cover it up. Yeah, but uh, so the kind of the radioactive particles from the trees were kind of being released again. Oh no! So we were not supposed to go there, or we were not allowed to go there again. So it, it sounds also to me like you're, you talk a little bit about the solemnity of taking on uh, a story about this like real-life tragedy. How does that change the day-to-day of what you're doing, mm. the fact that, that it's about such a true story and that Craig Mazin is going to, and I'm assuming the director as well, going to, to extreme lengths to recreate what it was like? Yeah, I mean, with every project you do, you put all your heart in it, and, uh, and I always try to choose a project which I... 100% believe in or I want to believe in it or I want to make it as good as you can and you want to make a good film which will you know make people reflect about themselves or about the surroundings but on this one everyone knew that you know it was that of course but it was also this thing that we are carrying some you know some weight on our shoulders to um, to tell everyone to inform you know if it's Americans who are not who we thought were not so aware of this but to inform the world what happened and that it should not happen again so everyone was very very serious and like I said before made big kind of sacrifices to, in order to uh, to do this and there was like a calling for many people we mm-hmm. had a SFX uh, team in Germany who um, who have a you know very good job doing different big TV shows in in Berlin or in Germany and and they said that you know we're going to leave that and it's well paid, but we're going to leave and um, and go to you know to a foreign land and be be away from our loved ones for a long while. And they felt it was very very important to you know f- to tell this story. Did you ever find yourself in a situation where you had an aesthetic choice versus an accuracy choice? Like, oh, this shot would be so cool if we just yeah. if this thing was in the shot and somebody would come in and be like, nope, that's not how that would be. Like, yeah. like where was the tipping point in in those kinds of decisions? I mean, it it was all about honesty and sensibility and to be uh, graceful and respectful and not to get carried away ourselves and just to, uh, you know, it's almost like a prayer, you know, we are not Mm -hmm. shooting the film, we are not, we are kind of praying while we are shooting the film or the camera is uh, just there, not trying to get carried away and not trying to push anything and it's just trying to... uh, be an observer, not a sterile 
completely passive observer, but to um, be as um, as careful as, as possible. And and I guess the template or the starting point was the production design. I mean, they worked so much on, on realism. Let's yeah. make this correct. Let's make it exactly how it looked like. And I guess we, we followed those footsteps. Like I'm thinking that there are, there are episodes, like specifically uh, the episode where everyone had to go on the roof. There was like that just glorious wonder yeah. where we're following that guy on the roof, yeah. which, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times filmmakers use a wonder to be like, look what I can do. And it's kind of a show off you move or, you know, they saw children of men and fell in love with, you know, that that kind of an idea. That was when I was watching that scene, I I was holding my breath like it, it it was probably the most justified one or I've seen yeah. in any in any film project. And at the same time, even though it doesn't feel like a genre film, it doesn't it, you're not it's not leading with genre. It feels very historical. But I don't know a horror fan who wasn't a fan of Chernobyl. I think that that there are many elements of genre like horror that played into it in terms of the way that you you created tension and kind of held us on that on that uh cliff's edge how much of of that kind of informed how you would uh, approach shooting scenes were you thinking about genre at all or were you like when when you go to something like a glorious one or like that like to me that one or is just such a masterpiece but like you have to be thinking about how that gets used in in film and how you're using it in a different way yeah i mean there were many glorious uh, wonders in the script mm-hmm. uh, in those five episodes. Did it say it in the script that there was like going to the, be no cuts? There were many glorious. Whoa, really? Yeah, I mean, there's an amazing script, and there were many kind of described very well, uh, so to speak, glorious wonders where the tra- where the camera travels uh, through the reactors and through the kind of discussions between, I guess, Craig Mason and, and Johan Rank. Many of those glorious wonders were never became glorious wonders we felt <laughs> yes like you said we we don't want to we don't want to show off this it's not about showing what we can do it's just yeah. showing what 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 happened and well in the case of the one that i'm talking about i feel like it was such a justified thing yeah for sure and and you're so right and that was the only kind of long uh, one that we have in the film and and was i think really interesting apart from uh, you know the technicalities of the camera and you know the production design is the is the actor who was chosen, or or uh, this young man who um, this actor? I don't know how he was cast, but he was not aware of the the struggles it would mean to to do that kind of pirouette or to do that walk on the roof. I mean, it was the hottest, one of the hottest summers in Lithuania, and that day it was the sun was out and it was blazing and it was super hot, and he had to wear all this gear that yeah, you know, they're the wearing same like gear basically and, yeah, yeah, it was like a radiation suit or something. Yeah, exactly, and you know, lead like almost like a lead. It's a lead armor. He had yeah. real lead on him and and uh, a lead apron or a very heavy you know rubber apron and these boots and this gas mask. So I remember I kind of told the producers. I think I said I'm you know I'm worried about this act. This if it's a stuntman or or I, maybe I even kind of complained or we can discuss that we should have had a stuntman for this because this young man who is playing this this poor man on the roof he's he's about he kind of fall off the because we were shooting on this kind of high platform so it was two meters down still oh it was, wow. you know it was blue screen all around but it was kind of a two meter drop to the ground and I was worried many times that he would fall off and and uh, and, and you know and and he had problem breathing and it was you know, it was really, really tough. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think also in that one, he falls a couple of times, and those falls were not kind of directed as such. It was, oh, really? He's actually falling. And I think we had we took almost a two-hour break to wait for this actor to... Uh, 
I mean, he's an amazing actor, but he... Um, no, it's, it, just, it, it, it's, it, a, it's a tough it's thing to ask very, anybody very to do. Very, very tough thing. And, and that... Your body just gives out. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, and that really made it so well. And, and, mm. and that's also interesting. How, what would have happened if you had shot that scene in, here in, in um, Hollywood, in Los Angeles? Would that guy... Would have been an actor who could have played that so well or would be a stuntman... Yeah, who would have done it, in, you know, not at all in the in this much more smooth way, and then maybe that one wouldn't have been that glorious wonder. It would have been yeah. too smooth and too good. And you guys shot, if I'm not mistaken, you shot in a city with a nuclear reactor that was like virtually a clone of the real one in Chernobyl. Correct? Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, like the old Soviet Union, just like made cookie cutter cities. Yeah, I mean, we we built the reactor, we built the exterior, and of course interiors were built and. But also for two weeks we were shooting in the twin plant, the sister plant of Chernobyl, which is, um, well, it's a twin plant. It's uh, identical to Chernobyl. Apart from it's got only two reactors. Chernobyl had four or has four. But so we had access to that one. It's not, it's it's two hours south of Vilnius, not far from the the border to Belarus. And uh, yeah, it was quite scary. So we were there for, for two weeks shooting exteriors and even some interiors. And yeah, it was quite amazing. Uh, you talked about that book of photographs. Were there other visual inspirations that came into uh, how to how to create the overpowering bleakness that just kind of permeates every every frame of Chernobyl? I mean, the the director has, uh, I guess, he was well cast or chosen for the project. I mean, he's <laughs> he's done some very bleak yet very humane, you know, work, yeah. previous work, which is very much like the end result. You know, he did an amazing. Um, even amazing short he did like 15 years ago, which is very much very similar to the scene with Legasov in his apartment. Oh, really? And I don't know if producers saw that scene or that film that he did um, shot on an iPhone, on a, on a, not a, it was before iPhones, on a small little Ericsson um, telephone beginning of the 90s. But he, so of course, he brought a lot to the project. And, and like I mentioned before, my, um, my Odessa experience, my, my shoot uh, almost 20 years earlier in Odessa, Ukraine, my experience there and uh, I think that brought a lot at least for me that was kind of a starting point in many ways the look of that documentary is it made kind of influenced me I think doing the kind of the visuals of of Chernobyl so Chernobyl is in so many ways like one giant it's not it's it's kind of like a movie and it's kind of like a tv show but it's five episodes long so it's basically like a five-hour movie in a sense in that it's one closed story. It's not like even a, a, a show like Six Feet Under or The Sopranos that goes on and on and on. This is only designed to be this many episodes. What's it like trying to kind of build the visual arc or the the look, the what, whatever work it is that you do to kind of create the the wholeness of the of the final piece? If it's such an enormously long project, well, the time frame is not long in the script itself. I mean, the story it, I think takes place during two years, and because we have different uh, seasons uh, within that period, but otherwise we are always in the same place, and and it's meant to feel like that. Also, it, it's meant to feel like uniformed, and it should not feel like different stories mm-hmm. as such and different looks. So we wanted to to have one kind of united uh, vision for it all. The only thing we played with a bit, or not just not say play, but that we kind of used as a tool was the uh, was the the sunlight or the the highlights in the film and. 
one reference point in the film was these murals, these Soviet murals, where you see the um, atomic sun together with the um, with the worker, with the, uh, the the communist worker mm. working together with the atomic sun, which is actually the uh, the uh, the radioactive atom. So you can see big murals in Kiev or in Moscow, in these enormous murals depicting the the radioactive atom hand in hand or working together with, with mankind or with a with a worker and oh and and that kind of image made us kind of gave us the idea to use the um, to portray the the invisible threat to to uh, to portray the radioactive atom as as sunlight somehow so so throughout the the film often the more radioactivity often you will see the more sun there is the more um, Overexposure we are introducing. Oh, interesting. So, so that was uh, a kind of dramatic curve that we did in terms mm-hmm. of the look. Is that something that you baked in on the day when you were shooting, or is that something that you added in in the grade, or wh- where did that come in? Well, you can often see, it, for example, in that uh, in the in the wonder. Mm-hmm. So this big on the roof, which is the most dangerous place on the planet, where you had the most, uh, the highest amount of relativity, it was also the the strongest sun, where there was a real burnout. Yeah, it's very overexposed, and and throughout the film you can see that the more sick someone gets, the more often overexposed he gets. Oh, interesting. That's brilliant. When I'm thinking about it, makes me want to go back and rewatch all the scenes where like the firemen are in the hospitals. Yeah. And I'm sure now, like as I'm remembering it, and I could be misremembering it, but it's like the, there were windows and sun was kind of pulling in all over those yeah, guys. Yeah. So, so in the film, often you're in safety from the activity when you're in, in the dark. Yeah. And as soon as you're getting closer to, for example, to the roof, when you see them climbing up the stairs, it just gets hotter and hotter. And also you see the lights start to flicker more and more. Yeah. Sometimes the practicals are flicker, but even the daylight is flickering. And even the rays of sun is, mm-hmm. is flickering. And all this is very subtle, but that that it really is, because like I feel like it's a I mean it doesn't it doesn't feel like a documentary style thing, but it does it, it doesn't feel like highly, highly, highly no, stylized. No, we don't want that either, but it should be felt somehow and, yeah. and uh you know this idea or this kind of concept is once again is more for for me and for the for for my gaffer to be as Hendrickson to have to have some kind of a guideline of how yeah. we should light the scene in the kind of that makes sense to us. That's brilliant. I makes I'm seriously going to go watch it again and just kind of look for those moments. So after Chernobyl uh, premieres, that must have had a humongous effect on on your career. Like like I mean to me that was one of the most acclaimed shows of of the year. Uh, you know, really of the decade. I'll uh, do you one better. Uh, here, I'm just going to has a question. Uh, I'll do you one better. I was just looking at IMDb, and Chernobyl's actually tied with Breaking Bad for you know highest rated scripted series of all time. And uh, depending on when you look at it, it's like either one or in the top five because it's also lumped in with things like Planet Earth and and stuff like that. But yeah, also I had read about huge spikes in tourism to Chernobyl after this. Mm -hmm. You would think that maybe people would want to stay away, but actually they say that it's a 30% increase in people now traveling to Chernobyl. Uh, What other effects on you personally or the world do you think has happened since the debut? Yeah, no, I mean, mean, that was a big worry for that I had was what will happen to this project. We all knew it was a good script and it should become something good out of it. Also uh, adapting the script into images and it's a great director on board and all this great cast, but I, of course I was worried that it would just show up as a, you know, as a thumbnail on 
on the HBO website with a, you know, a bad picture of, from the film as a thumbnail and, <laughs> and people would click on it and kind of stop view, seeing it after 10 minutes and it would just be one of many, many TV shows and it would just be you know, seen as something depressing and sad and people wouldn't care about it. So, of course, we're all in shock, you know. We had no idea that it would be like this, you know. It's, um, you know, even on the main pages on our daily newspaper and on the political pages in the editor uh, section, people are po- talking politics uh, about how to change our country and they're referring to the show. It's amazing that, you know, that is, is you know, entertaining, fascinates people and it's yeah. political and it's making people... Um, not change their internal world, but it's actually changing, you know, how people act today. Well, it does have a weird resonance today, you know, when we live in a world where people want to deny facts, and if they deny loudly enough, they they hope the facts will go away, and that's sort of, you know, kind of buried in the, in, in the, that's the whole point of Chernobyl. Yeah, that's true. Um, so uh, as we wrap up, if people want to see your work online, do you have a website, or is there a place where people can see your work? I have a website. Uh, it's not very updated, but uh, yeah. not one cinematographer's uh, uh, website is updated. Yeah, okay. We, we haven't we haven't had one on here who's like, I just updated it last week and it's completely up to date. Yeah. Not one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, so they can see some of my work there. And um, oh, what's the URL? It's um, it's my name dot uh, com. So it's jakobire.com. Uh, and uh, are you on Instagram or any of those other places where people can No, I'm not on Instagram or Facebook or nothing like that. You have so many more hours in your day than I do. <laughs> I, I'm very jealous of you. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a real pleasure. And thanks for talking about your work. Well, thanks for having me. It was very interesting, too. All right, that was uh, Jakob Ire. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was uh, an unparalleled thrill to uh, talk so much shop about Chernobyl. I, something that, that I just love. I love so much. <laughs> I know I know that you do. Hey, you know what else we love, Ben? Uh, uh, paying the bills. <laughs> I was going to say we love Aperture. Aperture. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pay, paying the bills is always nice. It's better than not paying the bills, you know. Yeah. But, but uh, eh. it, I mean, think that everyone within the sound of my voice who wasn't, you know, brought up with a silver spoon, so to speak, has uh, has not been able to pay the bills once or twice. And, and well, I know that like when I first got together with Alicia, it's like a bill comes in and she pays it. And I'm like, the first one, the envelope isn't even the right color. Like to me, it's like when you get the red, like we're about to shut, <laughs> discontinue service. That's when I would pay it. <laughs> the, pa- the long past due. That's the, the big red stamp on the outside. Past due, past due. Do, do Urgent. Not, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're going directly to jail. Um, okay. So, so Ben, we, we love Aperture. I want to... The last few times we've talked about the Aperture MC light, it's always been very abstract for you. I have not had it in front of us, but today I have one in front of I'm us right now, right now yeah. and I want you just to play with it. I think that this yeah, I want, is... This I want is, people to hear. That's, uh, that's it. It's got a huge magnet on it. Right, so it's probably two, two what... It's, it's probably about, what, like three inches wide by two inches tall? Yeah, that's like the size of a business card. It's basically like 16 by nine, and then it's it, may, maybe half, half an inch. inch thick. Yeah. All right, cool. So, sorry for everyone who's in metric land. I, I, I can't do the conversion, but... Sorry. Uh, yeah. Sorry, we're, we're filthy Americans. <laughs> yeah, right? we, we've... we've <laughs> our, so, our government government made a real decision years ago to not inform the youth of the metric system. It's very important. So yeah. uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, switch this to on. Yeah, there's a switch I, on. There. God, Whoa, I wish I wasn't looking straight into it when I did that. That was probably a mistake. Yeah, yeah, okay. Facing <laughs> the facing the bright side of that light is There's like uh, a little a little jog wheel. Jog wheel. That's right. And uh, how do I? I know this goes into multiple. Yeah. Modes. Okay. So you've got the jog wheel, mm-hmm. and it's real simple. You press in and hold it down, 
Mm-hmm. And now if you look at the screen on the top, you will see that now oh, you've got a whole bunch oh, of there's like a little screen. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, you had your thumb on it, but now that you built oh. it, now you can oh, very so I can see. change the uh, the yeah. color temperature. That's right, color temperature. I can change the oh, I can change you, the intensity. Very you, easy. You can go into effects, and then you you just press you tap it again to switch uh, into yeah. the one that you want to select, and then all those things become unlocked, like colors. Do you hear me tapping it, people in here? It's very silent. You could do the sunset and not make any sound. He, ben has the light about six millimeters from the microphone. Yeah, I, I want people to hear the uh, the satis- It's a very satisfying little click sound. There. And, and here I tried to go with millimeters because you know, you know, I, I kind of have an idea of how far that is. I just reset it. Oh, it's reloading. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you reset the whole light. All right, so now I'm going to go to FX, which is what I want. Oh, I hit reload again by mistake. All right, so I'm going to go to FX. So there's something really cool about this, too. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. What just, got, what just happened, Ben? Tell I just, her. I just uh, set it to fire, oh, and yeah. so it's created like a nice warm orangey thing you, that I can... You, oh. oh, cop car. Okay, Whoa. So, so, so you looked like uh, you were hanging out by the campfire, and now the cops are coming to bust you. That's so. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, cop car. So what else do we got? All right, so you know, there's also a thing they call a mesh network. You can control hundreds, actually maybe even thousands of these uh, with your phone. You can have them link one to another really so if you want to set up a actual campfire sort of situation where you had like 10 or 20 or 50 of these things all together uh you could individually or link them together control uh, these lights i'm on a setting called pulsing and again there's like a little uh a little led readout on the top of it or on the side of it rather um so it's pulsing and it's like kind of a blue light i assume i can change the color temperature of the pulsing but like i'm imagining i'm doing some kind this of is, science fiction thing and oh I this need, is like warning warning yeah, yeah, that's, yeah that's happening right now well even just like i've got a big a big computery panel in front of me and i just need what I, are you doing Hal? no no that's <laughs> dave dave what are you doing party. Dave? oh party party and party is like a disco so party is yeah it's just like ever shifting uh yeah. colors yeah uh, you could do lightning oh cool Lightning is really cool. Uh, anyway, so this is not a huge light. You might use these sorts of things in close-up mode, like where you're, uh, you know, yeah. just need a little fill on someone, or depending on what the effect is. But it is certainly bright enough that you could get a uh, a lot of good effect out of this. Certainly, if you ganged a bunch together, it'd be easy to gang four or twelve or whatever you would need together for this. And twelve of them is probably like a one by one panel. And, well, and I would I never, say a lot of one by panels are around, let's say, a thousand dollars. So how much does uh, this one run you? It's ninety bucks. So, that is totally worth it, and I'm totally buying one of these. Okay, well, uh, you can buy them at Hot Rod Cameras. Hot Rod Cameras is one of the few places that have them on stock, although I think that we have now taken them off our website saying that we don't have them in stock, or we may have just actually... Uh, actually, maybe we've just sold out. By the time you listen to this episode, they may be gone. But I would say we have lots and lots and lots uh, coming in with the next shipment. They had a slight delay with, of course, what we were talking about in the 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 close focus, which is uh, coronavirus. Coronavirus has disrupted supply chains for, for many, many companies, but uh, Aperture actually had just built a new factory. And so they are, they're coming back online faster than um, I think most of their competition and we'll have uh, lots of lights coming out to us shortly. How many of these settings are there? There's like one called paparazzi. That's like flash bulbs going flash bulbs. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's one called fireworks. That's just like random colors going off sort of in a, in a fireworky kind of a way. Yeah, exactly. There's a bunch. There's a, there's a, there's a lot in there. Plus you can kind of create your own stuff. Well, that's what I'm wondering. It's got a USB C uh, port on it. So I'm wondering if that's for charging. It's just for charging. Like you can't like download new new settings or share stuff online or something. Mm, I've not seen that, but definitely the app has a whole bunch of controls, and the app is all wireless. So you okay, so you, you can you can do that. You can do it with your phone. 
this is badass. I'm this not trying why, to be oh, trying and, to be salesy. This is a really cool light. And here, and what's this thing? You've got like sort of this. Oh, this, it's like a little uh, rubber, mm, or it's like a silicone soft box that goes on it. That's right, little soft box. And, and you now, can still read all your. You stuff. can. It's got little holes cut out, so you've got control of each nice. of those things. As long as you didn't put it on upside down, I, Plus, which I didn't. There's a quarter inch hole on the bottom, so you can mount this to arms and things. Plus the big magnets, so you could try mounting it here on this toolbox. Oh, actually, look at this. I have another one. Here's another yeah. one on the toolbox. I don't know if you can hear this noise. Totally. Yep. That is the uh, that's the sound of the magnets doing their job, uh, attaching itself to this toolbox. And as we know, you've used it in your personal life to uh, handle issues. You know, we're not talking about that again. Okay. So <laughs> that's the funniest story if, you've if ever someone, told. If someone wants to uh, hear that story, they'll have to go back and listen to our catalog of. Uh, okay, of, uh, we've talked about this a lot, but honestly, I'm holding this light and I'm fascinated, and it's uh, it's something. <laughs> it's like the best ninety bucks you might ever spend. Well, I mean, also like if you just are doing an interview or something, and you just needed to pop a little extra light on somebody. Correct. This the, is perfect. The eye light sort of thing, which can be a huge hassle of having to get like in in. in years past it was like a single kino tube or things like that where you had yeah. to net now uh you get a, got a put little, little tinkle in a little tinkle a little twinkle in somebody's eye do not oh. tinkle in anyone's eye <laughs> oh whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, okay so uh you, you let, let's move on shall we all right <laughs> so, oh and you know uh you can always uh enter to win one of these aperture mc lights with the contest that we are uh running through hot red cameras contest have, yeah we have a contest am i you, eligible you are sadly not eligible, but every, <sighs> almost everyone else is eligible. Uh, you could actually win two of these MC lights. I couldn't. You, 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 you as a, a a concept, not you as a person. Yeah. So, the royal you. The royal you. So if you go to our Instagram, there is a place for you to enter to win these lights, which is super cool. But you know, this this should be our our call to action. We should inspire our listeners right now to uh, like and subscribe. Please like. Please subscribe. It takes seconds. You're already looking at your phone anyway. Put down words with friends for 15 seconds and like and subscribe you know uh, we do have a youtube channel that we've never really used but if you do subscribe and hit the little bell icon when we do start posting stuff which is coming this year we have stuff that's we're already putting in the can that we are planning on uh, launching into the world if you do that then you'll get notified when you get there's a video that you can that you can watch and you can find uh and how know, much are people going to be paying for all this it's content? all free this it's is all free all this free. doesn't cost anything it costs the same amount we don't, as the, listening to our podcast we don't do a patreon you are not missing out on some exclusive content somewhere we are giving 100 all of it to you for free so yeah yeah so you write a review follow us on instagram write follow review, us on facebook maybe even like tell a friend tell a friend telling a friend's awesome do telling that. a friend is the easiest thing someone who you know who's into cameras or cinematography or uh you uh, know maybe even just sort of like this slightly more technical side of visual movie and stuff and sure. likes 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 what we're the type of stuff we're doing you know or people know. who like to hear uh uh dudes in their 40s talk about their kids yeah <laughs> uh, that, that was almost a swear jar right there that Oops. was that was, yeah. was pretty close I, uh, you you you, I, I you, you didn't it. make it about yourself you made it about you know both of us yeah so yeah. Close, well close but, uh, yeah. anyway like and, right. like and subscribe ask a friend to like it do the instagram thing win, win yourself an aperture light i'll be jealous maybe you can let me borrow it now short ends okay so ben it is our close focus time do you it have is a... not close focus it is oh, our sorry. short end time you're right. this is the episode of us calling things things that they're not that's true okay so you're right it is the short end time what what, what is your short end this you're week? gonna punch me so hard Ooh, get ready all right you ready i'm ready okay my short end which is my true obsession this week is a podcast here it comes Oof. 
Thanks, Ilya. I deserve that. No, no problem. That's uh, that's yeah. the, you needed that. Right. You needed that. Okay, yeah. So no. How dare you keep listening to podcasts? Um, so. <laughs> so there's a podcast that Gimlet makes called Reply All. It's actually sort of the descendant of a podcast that was called TLDR that was made by some public radio station. Uh, too long didn't read. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, what, what are they? I did. I knew they made one season of that. What season are they on now? Uh, well, well, TLDR has been gone for a long oh, time. Oh no, I meant the reply. The, all. the two hosts. Uh, I they're on episode 158, so we oh, have a while to, to catch up with them. Yeah. And this is like, it's a really cool show where they usually like do a deep dive investigation into something involving technology or the internet in an interesting way, which is I find always pretty cool. But this episode, I have listened to all the way through twice, and that means I've spent about two hours of my life just listening to the same podcast. Wow. It's episode 158, and it is called The Case of the Missing Hit. So I'm not going to spoil anything that happens as we get into the story, but it's about a guy who actually is in L.A. We should get him in here. Um, There's no, I mean, he's a filmmaker, so maybe he has something to talk about with us. But uh, it's about this guy who is like talking to his wife and he like quotes this pop song that he heard growing up. And she's like, what the hell is that? He's like, oh, don't you know the song? And like recites a bunch of lyrics. She's like, I've never heard this song. And so uh, does the song not exist? I, th- that is the central question of the whole episode. Wow. So I, I don't want to get into that. So he goes home and obsesses on it and he like Googles the lyrics and then he goes because he's a filmmaker. He literally sings every part. He remembers the entire the, song, all the lyrics. He remembers the way the guitar solo sounded. He remembers that it had a certain melody in the intro. And I'll only tell you up to this part of the story, which is also still pretty good. So, that, so he makes this. Uh, he records the song. He records it himself. Yeah. And he tries to put it into a thing called Soundhound, which is like a thing like it, it, it's it's uh, designed so that you can sing a song into it and it'll tell you what it is. Yeah. And it doesn't work. So uh, the hosts of Reply All come to L.A. and they go to some fancy pants uh, recording studio that Frank Sinatra built. And they bring in a bunch of uh, backup singers, like and session musicians, musicians basically. Yeah, yeah. And they record the song exactly as he remembers it. He writes out all the lyrics. He coaches. And he's not a musician. How he, long is this song? Is it like a five? It's, it's, it's a pop song. It's, it's, like, okay. it's a couple minutes long. And then they start going to experts and nobody's ever heard of this song. But it's like. Do they like this song? Or is this is this is that is that irrelevant? Well. To this? The song is a very late 90s sounding thing. People compare it to uh, U2 and Bare Naked Ladies a lot. Okay, so uh, did this supposedly take place? The song be released in the late 90s? Correct. That, when wow. this guy was in middle school, it, or yeah, it was, I believe, middle school in, in uh, Arizona, mm. uh, he heard it on the radio and he remembers it with like uncanny clarity and all these very specific lyrics. And it's like the lyrics sound like a 90s song. Mm. Uh, it, and you don't think he wrote this in middle school? Really, that's that's the central question. So I, yeah. I don't. It's not about him him having written it. He's saying, and he also says like he's not someone who listened to indie rock. He listened to like mainstream top forty radio. Okay. So this was something that was played on the regular old radio in Arizona. And then, oh, and then there's one other. Could have been a local indie band. That there's like, one other. There's one thing that refutes that, that that comes up quickly is that the only other evidence of this song that he finds on the internet anywhere is on a Stratocaster uh, chat site somewhere, where a guy plays the riff that opens it up and and references a few of the lyrics, and that guy is in Trinidad and Tobago. So <laughs> that completely nullifies the the theory that. A, that he made it up entirely, and B, uh, that it was just like a local band in Arizona. So uh, who could have ripped off that Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago uh, rift that this other guy or was it that from the 90s or was it from or something? That early? person remembered it also from the 90s. And that was the only other evidence that he's that starting out. And I'm only really giving everybody the starting point of the story. 
this story has so many twists and turns. They talk to so many interesting experts. So many people tell them that this song doesn't exist. And I don't want to sound like a listicle, but like how this ends will surprise you. Okay. Well, you also have basically just summarized the plot of a episode from a similar time period of Married with Children. Oh, there's, really? There's an episode of Married with Children. They don't reference that. Where That's Al Bundy has this song stuck in his head and he goes around to all these people and he only knows like this part of the chorus where he goes, mm-hmm, him. And he's no one. No one knows what this is. No, only he is the only person who knows what this is. It feels like it was clearly based on someone's real life. Not actually. I think that we've all kind of gone through this. And I kept thinking and they don't really bring up the mandala effect, which is like these weird shared memories that a lot of us have of things that didn't ever happen. Hmm. Like uh, people, they call it that. I think actually it's the Mandela effect because uh, so many people thought (laughs) Berenstein versus the Berenstain bears. Exactly. A lot of people thought Nelson Mandela had died in prison Mm. and then he hadn't. And it was like a commonly held thing. Also, there was that uh, 90s movie Kazam, I want to say Shazam Uh, with Shaq. Yeah. So so people remembered one with Sinbad that wasn't the real one. Mm. Okay. I don't. I, I don't share this memory because apparently I wasn't dabbling with this interdimensional uh, travel. Sure. I, I wasn't close enough to the. Was it just, Shaquille just, O'Neal? Do I have that correct? Because uh, Shaquille O'Neal was in whatever the real one was. But people remember Sinbad, Sinbad being in in one of them. And yeah, I mean, like, again, I wasn't near the Large Hadron Collider uh, on the right day to have seen the alternate reality. I think that people might have just been uh, confusing Sinbad as sort of like a uh, as a but, name. But, that is but like there's in in pop psychology circles they call it the mandela effect which is uh the fake shared memory yes the the, and and people i think that people are just not very observant i've i've seen these sort of things fly by on facebook feeds and stuff like do you remember this and i go like you know what i think you just weren't very observant fair well to me like what what is fun about this episode and like everyone who i've recommended it to has has had kind of a similar experience to me is it's just like no, they don't ever mention that, but it's sort of like this need to obsessively know this thing. And we've all encountered, like, I think a lot of us have encountered, like, there's a person you remember and there's literally no evidence of them online. You're like, how can you not exist online? It's pretty easy, actually. And it- I think it gets really easy as you are older. The older mm-hmm. you are, the less likely that there's evidence of you existing. And online, it's interesting. So. But like for a song, a song that got radio play to have vanished is is such an incomprehensible thing to us today because we're so used to being like I'll just go on YouTube and find X whatever X I'm going to reference uh, searching for sugar man too. I think that's a perfect example. It is. So uh, of sort of this thing that you're talking about which does not really exist in did not really exist in this country but was like a really really big deal somewhere else uh, geographically and even I think before that documentary w- did not ha- give a lot of attention to the artist in in the in the documentary beforehand. Like I don't, I think it would have been really hard for you to find anything about him, you know, and I, I don't want to go down, down that too much. This is your, this is your sh- short end. And so totally but, cool. But okay. yeah, I mean, I, I just think as uh, whoever's listening to this, you listen to podcasts, check out reply. I'll check out that episode. And I, I think it is a fine example of like just going down a dramatic rabbit hole. And I, I like, uh, I don't usually even like listen to podcasts when it's just me watching my son, but I couldn't like, I'm in the backyard with him. He's in the swing and I'm everything that I've hated in my whole life. I'm like sitting there with, uh, with my earbuds in listening to this. Cause I have to know how it ends. It like, it really was just a, such a great stem winder of a story. I just loved it. Okay. My short end this week is uh, better call Saul. 
Uh, Better Call Saul. Great show. Yeah. Uh, Bob Odenkirk, uh, Giancarlo Esposito, fantastic cast. And you might remember their characters from the TV series Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is so incredibly uh, influential. It, I, I really feel like it it ushered in sort of the modern anti-hero mm-hmm. uh, as like a, uh, a television concept. And that world has become so rich since that series, including the... Uh, made for Netflix El Camino feature film, which tells uh, sort of a an epilogue to uh, Jesse Pinkman's story. Yeah. And, and regardless of how you felt about that, the fact that they have continued to to my silence will speak volumes about how I felt about El Camino. <laughs> well, I, I liked El Camino. I did not. I did not have mm-hmm. problems with El Camino, but uh, Better Call Saul. I think continues to pay off in ways that are very interesting, even on episodes where you feel like, well, maybe the story didn't necessarily progress. This this episode was about character development. And I know you and I have talked off mic about how you don't necessarily like the character development that happens in this world. The antiheroes are king. The antiheroes are the people who get tons of screen time, tons of development. And the way the story and web interlocks across uh, across the seasons mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways and they continue to make it interesting and masterful uh, you know actually I'm gonna uh, uh, I'll mention it right now uh, both Bob Odenkirk and Giancarlo Esposito were actually on a very short segment of the cinematography podcast you might remember from South by Southwest several years ago we did a little interview for them one better call Saul was yeah. uh, doing a premiere and uh, we did the interview inside of this uh, pop-up Los Poyos Hermanos yeah. and, uh, and, it, and it was fantastic we talk about the cinematography of the show and um, really the cinematography it, in that show, by the way, is amazing and continues to be amazing with, you know, they've had a couple of different cinematographers uh, from from the beginning now. And the the most recent episode uh, or one, uh, this most recent season has a bunch of macro photography work on mm-hmm. ants devouring a, uh, a an ice cream cone. It was amazing. That is not all CG. That is there. There is definitely real ants in there. That is that's incredible. To These me. are was, very analog filmmaker types. Like they they really do the real job of filmmaking. And like it's not a it's not a fix it in post kind of show. I don't think not not at all. And um, I I really like the show. I have to feel like since I have to say since Michael McKeon is no longer on the show, <sighs> I it is I I'm missing that relationship. He had such a wonderful arc though. His arc is so wonderful. And there's this one like the last episode. Of of last season there's this epilogue mm-hmm. sort of thing with him where they have uh y- you get to see when um <laughs> when he vouches for for jimmy when he mm-hmm. v- vouches for his little brother and he uh is passes the bar so i think i you know i don't think it's the end of him i feel like we may see michael McKean i just think that again. like i've been watching this season and i have been working harder to remain engaged in it even though i love the show and i think every other previous season is like a high watermark in episodic television um, and I love the way it looks. And I actually, somebody on uh, Twitter or something had commented about like the symbolism and I'm like, what symbolism? I hadn't noticed it. So I Googled it. And if you Google like color symbolism or, or just symbolism in Better Call Saul, you will go down a fascinating rabbit hole and you have to credit the filmmaking of, uh, that, that, that comes up with the thought, uh, the design. It, you realize how designed the show is from top to bottom. Incredibly designed. And you, you know, you can't talk about the cinematography of the show. At least you, I don't think you should without also talking about the production design and art direction, which yeah. are just top notch. So on the money. And even the costumes, the costume design for the, the world of Better Call Saul is spot on fantastic. Yes, I I, I want to say that in, in what I read, they were saying that like red, when, when you see stuff that's red, that's moving away from the law. And when you see stuff that's blue, it's moving towards the law. And 
there's you, a lot of yellow in it too. You can so. see when Jimmy is starting to starting yeah. to go. I mean, like both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul are about fundamentally okay people who become bad guys. Well, uh, in this most recent episode too, uh, we get a little bat blast from the past from uh, Breaking Bad. Hank comes back. Yeah, Hank, that was FB, cool. FBI or not FBI, but DEA enforcement agent Hank. So yeah, no, that that was cool. I just I, I miss Michael. I, the Michael McKeon story was was interesting, and I do feel like sometimes I feel like they're killing time. You know what? I felt like that's a very finite story, and I think it informs who Saul is as a character. Yeah. I think that 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 gives us a lot of basis of like w- you know why he is Saul Goodman versus Jimmy McGill. Well, and, uh, and also like I feel like the present day story that's the black and white sections of the show which is him, you know, working at a Cinnabon in a mall after having changed his identity and kind of ducked out of out of existence as Saul Goodman. Like that story is really fascinating and I, and I want more of it. And that's the thing. I mean, like that's kind of what these guys are good at doing. I think we're getting to that though. I think that we are building to that story. And, and, well, and we're getting little hints and te- and tastes they, and they, along the way. They did that with Breaking Bad, and I remember like there was a whole tease for I think the second season where it was like the cold open of every episode. I was like, "What the hell is that?" And the then it pays pool. Off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, that, that, that's an incredible season. No, that's no. A- I mean, like Vince Gilligan and and the team that he works with, they are really good at playing a long game story wise. And so I want to see where it goes. But I must say that I can deal with a little bit less character development of tertiary characters. Sure. Okay. But I think this is I think this fits really well for this episode, too, because we talk about what is a very uh, incredibly well put together finite series in Chernobyl. And now we also have the I feel like the other end of the extreme, whereas a long, winding, ongoing uh, world that continues to develop and continues to provide more. And it, even if you don't think that every episode is a 100 percent hit, you have to imagine that the uh, the world that Breaking Bad uh, and Better Call Saul inhabit is a world that's worth visiting. Definitely. I mean, I'm not I'm not slagging the show. I think it's a great show. So and then somewhere in between that sits the podcast reply all episode 158. So, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is not television at all. But but that, but, uh, but it but, could be, man, if that was a documentary. Oh, by the way, total side note. Yes. Uh, you had interviewed the people who made McMillions and mm-hmm. I've been hooked on McMillions on HBO. Isn't that fun? It's a really I mean, it's it's fun, but it also like at, at certain points you realize how menacing and awful these people were. Oh, 100%. Like, I mean, it's, really a, it's a fun people. series to, to be arm's length from. Yeah, to, yeah. to be involved in like, that. I wouldn't want to like, know any no, of these people. No, no, not at all. So, but uh, Except but yeah. that one farmer guy. He seemed okay. <laughs> There's a couple. Okay. Yeah. But he was kind of a victim in a way. Uh, all right, Ben, I think that does, just about does it for Holy crap. Uh, our episode. Sweet. So uh, we'll, we'll meet up uh, next week. We'll do all this fun stuff again. Excellent. It'll probably be an early day because I have to uh, I, I'm, I'm working on uh, sound design for a play at the Kirk Douglas Theater, if you can believe it. Can I tell you and our audience the weirdest thing I've ever been asked to source? Sure. I have to find someone who plays an instrument called a concertina, which is oh, yeah. s- sort of like an accordion, mm, but not. Yes. You've seen it in, in cartoons when you were yeah. a kid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I have to I have to source someone who can play the theme song to the odd couple. On a concertina. <laughs> now, I first went to... Uh, Give us a few bars of that theme, would you? Would you? <laughs> so I first approached our intrepid composer on the podcast, Kay's Alatracci, to see if he could do it. And he said, I, ha- I can get a sample of a concertina and it'll sound pretty good, but it's not going to sound like a real concertina because it's a bellows instrument and samples aren't going to do it justice. I would recommend you find a real concertina player. And mm. I have... Ooh. But it is—is is he over or she over the age of sixty? 
No. Oh, all right. No, no. Re- uh, a really uh, phenomenal player, actually. I, I don't want to say anything more because the deal isn't finished, but maybe I'll report back to you next week about our concertina situation. He he actually plays a thing called a bandoneon, Ooh, which right. is a kind of concertina. I've learned all kinds of things about concertina this week. By the way, everybody, I'm not a really a theater sound designer so it's <laughs> no but but living in los angeles you you sometimes find yourself doing uh what might sound like an odd job which is not really an odd job it's completely yeah. related to the stuff that you do do which involves a lot of posts yeah and it's i mean this is at the kirk douglas theater it's like a pretty legit uh gig it, it's also like if you if you live in los angeles and you happen to look at the credits of a lot of uh television shows and movies you sometimes see some sort of music supervisor is actually a local radio station dj here oh yeah like, well you, nick harcourt you know became a big deal in that Nick Hardcore. Just, there, yeah. there's there's several people who do it but anyway yeah. so all that to to dovetail into thanking our intrepid composer Kay's Alatrachi go to musicbykays.com and and this story if nothing else should illustrate that if Kay's can't do it he will tell you <laughs> that, that that's on his business card it's like if I can't do it I'll tell you I'll tell you it's very better call Saul with a business card that way <laughs> 50% off your legal services for non-violent felonies so. <laughs> anyway but just go to musicbykays.com and, and of course I'm uh, I, I'm terrible for not starting by thanking our amazing producer Alana Cody kicking all the ass you know what I, I was going to start with Ben Katz this time we got to start our uh, you know thank our incredible editor who did extra work last time uh, for us to make us not sound yeah it's because we, we busted out a new recorder and didn't set it at exactly the right setting so he so, didn't get he didn't get the two discreet channels he's so used to work he with. had a uh, a heck of a time trying to make that last one work but i'm sorry but he, about he, that ben but he made it work and uh and this time you got you got two discreet files yes we hopefully fixed the problem ben thank you all right we will see you next week with an incredible credible episode an incredible credible episode that's right it's like the credible hulk it's, you know he <laughs> uses reason and facts to support his arguments so <laughs> not the incredible hulk who just no pun- it's not the incredible people. that's right the incredible hulk it doesn't use reasoning at all but the credible hulk that's, that's you know the one who we have to be careful of is the credulous hulk the credulous hulk <laughs> The Incredulous Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we'll see you next week. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.